welcome to episode 35 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hello there, Steve. Today's guest is Sid Stovald from Who Moved the Ground, a 90s indie pop punk band whose story, Ben, is in many ways a quintessential indie band story, but behind which is adventure and friendship and a great deal more. Indeed, mate. It felt very much like this was uh, all a story about someone with a, a serious personal investment in kind of forging a musical community and then sort of paying it forward, you know, taking inspiration from uh, a burgeoning pop punk scene that they were around and then using that as the kind of impetus for, you know, taking their own musical journey forward and bringing other people along with them. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember that scene and uh, those bands and... Uh, it was definitely the atmosphere of uh, of like camaraderie and fans and band and you know kind of a, a, a real community um, feel to it. It was. I mean, we've you know we've touched we've touched often on the whole DIY ethic mm. um, in various people's stories, and that was very much a scene that kind of sat outside the the music press and the kind of um, music industry as such, and like like we discussed in this episode was built from the bottom upwards people just taking a decision i want to be in a band i want to you know i want to play gigs i want to make records and then here i'll just go i'll go and do it and that was seriously inspiring for sid wasn't it yeah it was and and i i hadn't until the conversation with sid made that link between the kind of hardcore scene um in the states that you kind of look upon and think, oh man, that's so cool. You know, these punk bands and they're just doing their thing and booking shows and home shows. And we, you know, the stuff that we talked with Joe Wong about and, and other people, and I hadn't really made that connection to this scene in the, in the UK, but they are, you know, they are, there's a real parallel there, isn't there? There is indeed. And there's, and there's also a lovely moment in this episode when he talks about, um, uh, you know, about maximum rock and roll, which was one of the, you know, sort of the, the, um, fanzines magazines from that hardcore scene in the u.s and how that inspired him to then go and put his own european tour together and think about the prospect of doing that immense and and there was some absolutely wonderful um and very different but extremely chilling um european tour diary stories that come into this episode that are going to they're going to come slightly out of the left field i think yeah yeah, but they, they they land pretty hard, don't they? Those stories, and, and there's kind of there's 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 something very current about them too, potentially. There is, there is indeed. But yeah, uh, yeah in many ways, Sid's story is the kind of thing that we had in mind when we first talked about setting up the podcast. Yeah, very much so, and um, there's often a moment when people click up onto the screen when you see them for the first time when we're recording the the interview, and. Um, and it was a deeply heartening image because there was Sid sat in front wall to wall vinyl. Um, and then we get some lovely stories about having the, the first piece of vinyl placed into his hand at a very, very young age that kind of set him on the trajectory to becoming a really serious collector, you know, a, a love of music, wanting to be a musician and also collecting other people's music and before we started recording he was saying you know it feels funny if the day goes by where he doesn't have a bit of a piece of vinyl dropped through his mailbox it was it was very very telling wasn't it (laughs) it was yeah no i love i loved that that idea of uh, he's just still super excited about a a, a new record arriving and uh uh, yeah his his collection was was vast wasn't it and it was really impressive he just kind of wanted to go in and start rooting through 
Yeah, and we did get we do get a lovely story about flexi disc, which kind of triggers those memories. Made me want to go and think. Well, are people still um, people must be still making flexi discs with the whole sort of you know resurgence of people putting stuff on cassette? Are there people making flexi discs at the moment still? Oh, I hope so. It, yeah, if not, let's go and make some, please. Yeah, don't, yeah, that, that, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, recycled material, flexi discs. That'd be uh, it's the way forward, isn't it? Oh, there's well, there's some brilliant stories up about um, a friend, a good friend of ours, Paul, um, did a, ra- a little radio program a few years back about um, the sort of Soviet bones flexi discs, where they were pressing um, flexi discs up on old X-ray photographs. It was. Uh, I think if you do a Google search, you'll you'll find some information on it. It's totally brilliant. Oh well, I th- maybe try and put something in the show notes if I can dig it out in the next twenty minutes. That would be yeah. What an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah flexi discs. Cool. Let's do it. Uh, that could be our first promotional material, mate, for the for the podcast. Songs from a padded envelope, flexi discs. Well, now now you've said it, it's got to be done. You know that. Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Why not? So uh, thank you to Sid for coming on and inspiring us to set up a FlexiDisc label. That was unexpected. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's some uh, links in the show notes to, to uh, some of the YouTube clips that uh, Sid mentioned, which are really worth going and checking out because they're very uh, evocative of that time and that scene and those haircuts uh, and pogoing around on the stage, which is brilliant. <laughs> Thanks to everyone for keeping listening to the show. Please do drop by Apple HQ and pop up a nice five-star review for us. And on that note, let's go over to our conversation with Sid Stovold on episode 35 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. Yeah, hi, my name's Sid, and this is going to be uh, A Thousand Voices by Who Moved the Ground. Well... Sid, uh, am I right in thinking this song is from Who Moved for the Ground's first demo? And and if so, how far into the life of the band were you at the time of recording? Um, yes, you're absolutely correct. This is from our very first demo tape from 1990. Uh, the original lineup of the band got together in 1989. Um, we did our first gig November 1989. So when we recorded this, it was June, I think, 1990. So we were probably... Uh, a year into it, we started rehearsing in June '89. And was that was this your your first band and your first time in the studio? Then said, "Yes, it was absolutely. I was seventeen, eighteen. Um, I just met the the guys from the band um, through a mutual friend. Um, they had already been sort of playing together, um, but they weren't uh, taking it seriously. They weren't sort of going anywhere, and." Uh, they got introduced to me. Um, I joined the band. It was my first band. Um, and it was all of the other guys. It was their first band. And we just, once I joined, we decided to take it a bit more serious. What was your role in the band? Uh, I was the guitarist, rhythm guitar. I did play a bit of lead guitar, but I was more of a rhythm guitarist. This this being your, your, your first band, what brought you to the point of picking up a guitar and uh, wanting to be in a band in the first place? Well, um uh, I've always been into music, always uh, collected records since I was eight years old. Um, and it was just a kind of natural thing when I was about 14 or 15 um, to want to play guitar. And I was at school with a guy who um, his dad played in like a local covers band. 
Um, so his dad used to teach him stuff and then him and I would get together and we would jam and learn stuff together. So I was sort of learning stuff secondhand, if you will. Um, but yeah, it was always something I wanted to do. Music's always been such an important part of my life that it was like a natural progression for me to, to start playing. Sid, it feels one of the things that we've often covered in the in these the interviews with people is about the importance of kind of music in the kind of home environment. Was what was it that kind of started you collecting records at eight years old, which is which is really really young, hey? Um, it was my dad. Um, he, my dad was exactly well. I'm exactly like my dad. He had a lot of records. He was really into music. He was really into um, Johnny Cash and the Beatles and the stuff from the 50s and 60s rock and roll. He was really into that. And um, in our house, um, weekends, we never had the telly on. We always had the radio on. It was one of those things. My parents would watch TV in the evenings, but when it came to the weekends, it was the radio was always on. So music was just a constant, constant thing. And, you know, my dad gave me a pile of records when I was eight. Um, I think there was like a couple of Beatles records in there. And it, it just made me want to buy more, obviously, because, you know, you could hear stuff on the radio, but it wasn't like, you know, instant access you have to music nowadays. I had to save my pocket money up and, and, go, and go to the shop on a Saturday and, and buy whichever single I thought was going to be worth the money. I'm kind of tempted to sort of fast forward through to uh the moment where you had your own song on vinyl for the first time i oh, see that was a very big moment a very big moment um the the track that uh, you're playing on this podcast um a thousand voices was taken from our first demo tape as uh, as we were just discussing recorded in 1990 and that demo tape sort of made its way around to various different people um, and there was a guy um, who lived not far from us who wrote a fanzine. And uh, with said fanzine, he used to release flexi discs. Now, I love flexi discs. <laughs> they are just ch cheap and cheerful ways. Well, you know, they were cheap and cheerful ways of getting music about. And um, he heard our demo tape and he said to us, I want to put one of your tracks on a flexi disc, you know. And that to me huh. was like a huge deal. It's like, Wow, we've made it. We're going to be on vinyl. All right, it's floppy vinyl, but it's vinyl. And so that was the first one. That was 1990, and that, that was a flexi disc. And well, I mean, I treasured that. Absolutely treasured that. Do you that still part. have a copy of it, Sid? Oh, absolutely, yes. And do you remember that moment that you put it on the record player and dropped the needle on and, and the, your song came out? I certainly do remember that very, very well. Yeah. I had a. Um, a cheap um at the time a cheap um like a you know almost like you know record players were like furniture in in the old days weren't they and it was it was a big old like what they called music centers and i remember vividly putting the record on there and you had to put like a coin on it because it was a flexi disc <laughs> to stop it from slipping yeah, yeah. um god kids today would never understand that <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I've ruined records by putting like weighing the needle down too too heavily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, what a lovely moment! Well, just thinking, going going back to the demo, Sid. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the session? 
in, if it was the first time you'd been in the studio, where where where, where was the studio and uh, um, what was the session like for you? Um, it was quite daunting, I think. Um, we went to a place called Ghost Studios in Send near Woking. Um, and we went there because some some friends of ours from another band had recorded there. So that's kind of how it kind of works when you're in a sort of, you know, an underground new band or whatever. You learn from other people. So um, our friends said, look, you know, we've recorded there. You should try there. So we thought, OK, great. So we booked a day in the session and we were um, new to it. We didn't know what what the score was. So we thought, well, just re go and record a bunch of songs. And what we did is we recorded um, three songs um where we did overdubs and we did like lead guitar solos and stuff added on afterwards and backing vocals. And then we recorded three songs just live. And I don't know if you look at the quality of it and the quality of it is, well, it's fabulous. I don't know how we got away with it, to be honest. How well prepped were you for the session as a band? Were you, were you kind of ready for the recording? I think so. Yeah. I think we were very well prepped you know we'd started in june 89 we rehearsed solidly um every week and did our first gig at uh the beginning of november 89 and then we went into the studio in june 1990 so we'd done a few few more gigs up to that point so i think we were well prepped the songs we chose we'd we'd played quite a lot and rehearsed quite a lot so yeah i think we'd kind of done our homework if you will were you quite ambitious then just from 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 the get go and uh, uh, uh you know had had kind of aspirations on what you wanted to do as a band absolutely absolutely i you know i've i've always been ambitious and always wanted to um to take the bands that i play in to the best level that we we can um we came from the same area as mega city 4 who were um you know, they were like our idols, you know, we looked at them and they were doing massive tours and doing releases and, you know, doing really well. And we just wanted to be like that. We enjoyed playing and we we kind of took their ethos. You know, we would just go out and, and play gigs. We just gig. That that would be our thing um, to to get our name about. And it it worked. You know, we we took that inspiration from them and. Yeah, I've personally have always been really ambitious and wanted every kind of band that I've been in to be the best it possibly can. You know, I, I'm not I'm not one of these people, you know, um, you see a lot of musicians who just, you know, they're very good at what they do, but what they do is just left in their bedroom. I never wanted to be like that. I wanted to, to sort of get out there and, um, yeah, just take the music to the people, really. It was a, it was an interesting time in terms of those bands like Mega City Four and Senseless Things. They kind of they kind of very much built themselves a scene from the bottom upwards, didn't they? They totally did. They totally did. Yeah, and it was a fantastic scene. The, the the live music scene. I mean, we were just sort of on the tail end of that. I mean, we did end up doing gigs with Senseless Things and Mega City Four, um, but we were sort of the tail end of that. But it was such a great scene, such a great live music scene to be involved with. So many, so many great places to play. There was never a, a shortage of venues and stuff. Nowadays, it's 
well, particularly during this pandemic, it's been looking a bit sorry for venues and stuff, which is sad. Something really uh, striking about that scene as well is the kind of vehement support of the fans who would just travel with the bands and and be like hugely supportive. And that was part of the culture in a way that isn't necessarily mirrored across other scenes. Um, no. Uh, so th- how how much was uh, th- was being part of that that scene? you know, helped you to grow as a band and and pick up a following. Yeah, hugely. Like I said, it helped us build a, a following because we we um we took that whole ethos from from those kind of bands where you would just go out and do gigs and you would um you would treat your audience like friends. Um and I can remember before even Who Moved the Ground had sort of done our first gig, you know, we'd started rehearsing but we hadn't done a gig. And yet we used to sort of go to Mega City 4 gigs and we would follow their van down to their gigs. We would help them load their gear in and stuff. And when Who Moved the Ground started, you know, we carried that kind of thing over, you know, where where we would be, we wanted it to be, you know, a scene where everyone was, was friends. And I think we did that pretty well, you know, people still remember who we are now and people have a lot of fond memories of what we did and that wasn't necessarily just the music it was because we we created that kind of vibe where everyone was welcome and you know everyone was was friends they weren't really fans they were just friends of ours Mm, i noticed on your on your bandcamp page that you've got lots and lots of material up there and just wondering are you has that sort of given a kind of resurgence to people that were kind of following you at the time? Have you had lots of contact back from people in relation to that? Yes, we have. Yes, funny enough, we have the band camp thing. Um, it's, well, it's been it's been a wonder actually. You know, lots of people have been getting in touch again. There's a Facebook page as well, which we have, which people are commenting on all the time, um, and people are like, you know, sharing memories and things it's it's wonderful you know i mean we were only active from 89 to 96 but you know however many years that is ago people still remember and people still want to um enjoy those fond memories yeah that's a special thing that's a really special thing just uh, going back to the demo again that the um having completed the recording and having the finished physical item in your hand you tell us a little bit because you're talking about being ambitious and wanting it to things to be the best that they can be tell us a little bit about um what you then decided to do with that demo in terms of putting a sleeve together and ordering the tracks and then getting it out into the 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 hands of people that you wanted to hear it well i mean the the order of the tracks we'd already decided before we went in to um record them so they were all you know we were well prepped we were well ready um, and as soon as we came out of that, um, out of the studio, it was just a case of copying the cassettes. Now, Richard, our singer, um, did a fantastic sleeve. But I, I mean, I don't know. If, I'm sure you guys will remember with cassettes, you know, you had the um, little spool things. But we had a sleeve that went all the way round, So we had to cut out little squares. <laughs> on each and every single one (laughs) each and every single cover to to, for the spool things to go in but that was one of those things you know we um 
we were 17, 18 years old and we wanted to get our music out there, we would happily spend hours with a little knife cutting these little oh, things yeah. out. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, we didn't make it easy for ourselves. But, yeah, once we'd, once we'd done the cover and, you know, we'd done the recording, it was just a case of um, uh, just sending them off, giving them to people, selling them at gigs. Um, that was where we got really ambitious. You know, like I said, with the Flexi Disc, that's how that came about because we gave that to somebody who did a fanzine. You know, we sold them at gigs, so you know we made some some money there. But you know, to anyone who was in in our eyes important, like a a promoter, um, a fanzine writer, or whatever, local newspapers, we gave them copies to um, to do whatever they wanted to do with them. And what was what was the so you're in Woking, is that right, Sid? Is that where the band was? Um, we were kind of based Aldershot, Woking, Farnborough, you know, all around that sort of area. And what was the what was the local scene like there? Was it was it thriving? Was it supportive? Hugely, hugely, hugely thriving and hugely supportive. There was a a lot of bands. Um, because of Mega City Four coming from Farnborough, there was a lot of sort of similar bands to that because there was other bands similar to us who, you know, took took the lead from them um not just in styles of music but in attitude as well um but yeah there was a lot of lot of great bands a lot of great bands do you guys remember the farmer groove series of cassettes no No, okay so there was a, a series of cassettes compilation cassettes put together by a guy called pete cole and these started in i think 1990 and they were compilations of um all the local bands and you know if if you look back at some of those they're all available on bandcamp the um the diversity of the music scene around aldershot farnborough woking guildford was huge there was loads of bands and you had everything from you know uh hair metal to punk pop like we were playing to goth to industrial there was all sorts of bands the scene was was fabulous and everybody used to again in much the same way as like we used to sort of follow mega city four when when we were starting a lot of the bands um when we sort of got going all used to go and see each other you know every if we weren't playing we would be at somebody else's gig the scene was very supportive really good could you find yourself on a bill with with very different musically uh, musically styled bands as well then yes absolutely yeah, I mean, I can recall us playing gigs with a band called The Flowers of Sacrifice, who were a two-piece with a drum machine, and they were a goth band. And, you know, we were a pop-punk band. But we shared the same uh, friends, we shared the same uh, followers, we shared everything, you know. So it, it didn't matter that the music was completely different, because people would come to the gigs because they knew they were getting a couple of bands um, that were good, albeit completely different, but they would also spend time with their friends and, you know, can, could go out and have a drink and a social. Oh, well, you were saying not, not, not just about the musical style, Sid, but you said about there was a similarity in terms of attitude. Could you say a bit more about that? Um, well, the attitude uh, seemed to be um, the people were... The bands were very supportive of each other, like I said, um, 
and people wanted to to help each other people uh followed followed the bands religiously like i said we we would be at somebody else's gigs if we weren't playing we would be you know actively seen at somebody else's gigs supporting them so everybody kind of supported each other the attitude for that was was fantastic you know um i'm sure in a lot of places bands are very standoffish and they don't they don't support each other and they don't like each other you know if if there's different kinds of music but we we never experienced that from my experience from from that sort of time you know like i said we would be a a goth gig one night or whatever or we would have a, a goth band supporting us um yeah i think the attitude was fantastic and i i honestly think a lot of this stems from that mega city four senseless things type of ethos where everybody you know supported each other what what preceded them to sort of that that sort of encouraged that within those two bands do you think well i don't really know i mean they were the forerunners of it as far as i can recall um prior to that you know there there was bands but they're um as as ben said earlier they kind of forged their own scene so you said that the demo brought you the um the flexi disc the um release and that but did uh did this demo go out to other labels or at what point did you start chasing record labels yes it did go out to um other record labels and we were always sending stuff off to people um didn't get much response if i'm totally honest we had a response from a label whose whose name i can't even remember um but they um it was a it was one of those kind of things i think they wanted us to record a cover version um as a single with one of our songs as a a double a side that seemed to be in in that sort of time in the late 80s early 90s seemed to be a a common thing for labels to want to get bands to record covers as their first single and um yeah we were approached by somebody who wanted to do that and i i, I think we just kind of balked at that idea <laughs> and we did have um a bit later on a label come to us and come to see us and they were gonna release a single for us and we recorded tracks for it um but then the label went bust <laughs> so um that was the end of that do you remember how the band felt when you uh when you started to get that kind of interest from labels around singles do you remember how that was for you all oh absolutely i can vividly recall i was working in farnham and um of course in those days pre-internet um a lot of stuff was just done by phone or by letters and we'd had a a letter from this label that wanted to do this seven inch for us and um, I was working in Farnham and I can remember going to the phone box, obviously, because this is pre-mobile phone days. And um, I went to the phone box with with the guys from the band's phone numbers, stack of 50 P's. And I'm phoning them all up going, we've got this record label that we want to do. <laughs> Brilliant. And I, I can remember standing in there, you know, in my lunch break, really excited about it. Um, but yeah, when it came to it, it didn't it didn't come to fruition. But. I was very excited at the time. We all were. 
how important was it um in terms of uh, making it to to the next level i mean you've already talked about how important the kind of the live playing live was for you that that was a, you know a dedicated part of what the band was about where was the balance between that in terms of playing live and taking things to the next level um i think the balance was we had to 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 sort of to, after we'd done the demo um and the flexi disc we had to try and take it to the next level we couldn't just um continue with with gigs although gigging was really helping us to build up our fan base and our, our friends and our followers and stuff that was working a treat but like i said we weren't getting the, the interest from labels so we were desperately trying to get interest from labels um to be honest we didn't really know how else to do it though um we were playing gigs in what we thought were all the right places in in London um, and around here and getting some good support slots with, you know, Senseless Things or Mega City 4 or whatever, but we weren't getting interest from the labels. I, I don't know why. It wasn't until 1993 that we um, actually got um, another proper vinyl release. Um, and that was done by a friend of ours who wanted to start his own record label um, because he could see the potential in us. Um, but none of the other record labels seemed to want to, to bite, to want to go for it. So he stumped up some money and, and we did a, a vinyl seven inch um, recorded and he released it as started his own record label. How did it go? How, what happened with the seven inch in the label? Um, it went it went very well. It went very well. It, it sold out pretty quickly. Great. Um, it um, it was it was done in two pressings. The first pressing was five hundred. We thought because um, I was heavily in, involved in it. Um, my mate was was running the label, but I was heavily involved in it. And we thought we'd just do five hundred to start with see how it goes but it sold out like really quickly so we had to do another five another pressing 500 um and then we did a follow-up seven inch again on the same label um which we did a thousand copies of and that again that sold out and we were getting more more gigs better gigs we were getting um more well known um so that that helped us massively, but we weren't getting any other kind of interest from any bigger labels. Couldn't couldn't tell you why. You know, we thought you know if we could sell a thousand singles um, and play decent gigs, you know, we were sort of selling out venues and stuff that people would be flocking, but they weren't. <laughs> yeah. Did you get? Did you manage to get a pick up interest with the uh, with the press live reviews and reviews of the of the singles you were putting out? Uh, no, we we got. Um, I tell you who who was uh, good for reviewing us. Believe it or not, was Kerrang. Now, Melody Maker, um, NME, they I don't know. They probably didn't think we were cool enough. Um, so they they didn't really review us. Um, NME did send a guy down to review us at a gig in Guildford, and he wrote a review. Uh, he brought a photographer with him. He wrote a review, uh, 
which was all very complimentary because he liked us. He, he, prior to working for the NME, he'd written his own fanzine and he'd interviewed us and he liked us anyway. Um, but when he went to um, submit it to the NME, um, the reviews editor um, decided that there was going to be a much bigger picture of iced tea and a much bigger review of iced tea going the NME that week. So our review got ousted out. So we, <laughs> we never got in. <laughs> and it, it's pretty impressive selling selling out a thousand copies of mm. a single and um, was that mostly through your through your fan base or how, how was that done how do you think that came to, to be uh, it was mostly our fan base um but chris uh the guy who ran the label he managed to secure um a distribution deal so um i couldn't tell you how many but possibly half or whatever of that that amount of copies went all over the country they all went to record shops all over the country um so yeah i would say you know most of it was to our fan base but yeah we did get a lot of interest um from other places around the country and it started to broaden our um things of doing gigs instead of it just being around the southeast you know all of a sudden we were playing gigs in Leeds um, and places like that and a lot of that because you know people had heard the, the single bought the single that's great can you share a little bit more about the the sort of the touring exploits of the band and and, and how you um uh went about doing that I'm, I'm presuming back of a van up and down the motorway yes uh to, to start with we, we did it in in cars but then again following the mega city four thing um, we bought a transit van. <laughs> um, Excellent. And that made things a lot easier. We would just go wherever, wherever would offer us a gig, basically. And we, um, we played all over this country from, you know, we didn't quite make it up to Scotland, but we were up in Newcastle, you know, Sheffield, Manchester, all those kind of places. And then we went far down. We played right by... Um, right by Land's End, we played in Wales, we played we played all over the place. Um, of course, the next step after that is we went to Europe. We did three tours of Europe, which uh, they were 94, 95 and 96. We did three different tours. Um, and they were absolutely outstanding. Uh -huh. um, the, the crowds of people out in Europe were so, oh, just so enthusiastic. Um, we never had a bad gig. We never had a gig that was poorly attended. Um, oh, fabulous. We had we had some fantastic times out in Europe. We played, in those tours, we played Poland, France, Belgium, Germany, Denmark, Austria. Um, and we did have gigs in Switzerland and Holland, but they fell through. Um, but yeah, I mean they were they were they were fabulous. That sounds amazing. Were these were these um, tours that you networked and put together yourselves, or yes? What happened? So uh, again, following the um, Mega City Four thing of we'll just go out and do gigs and stuff. So after the band had been playing for a while and doing all these gigs all over the country, um, the next thing was we want to play in Europe. You know, 
how do we get to gigs in Europe? Now, um, being an avid reader of the NME and stuff, I read in NME there was uh, a band looking for another band to tour with them in Europe. Basically, they were looking for a band with a van. No, they were looking for a, yeah, they were looking for a band with a van because they didn't have a van. Um, I rang them up and said, we've got a van. <laughs> we want to play in Europe. Can we come and tour with you? And they went, yep. It was that simple. Um, so we, uh, they had a, a two-week tour booked in France, Germany and Poland. Now, us being us, as, as in Who Moved the Ground, always more ambitious, we didn't want to just go out there for two weeks. We wanted to go out there for longer. Now, there was um, a punk magazine. I don't know if you guys know this American punk magazine called Maximum Rock and Roll. Mm-hmm. Well, they put out um, a book. Uh, it was like a pamphlet. And it was called Book Your Own Fucking Life. Now, in there, I, 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 I tracked this down. I thought, I'm going to have a look in there. And I, I found a copy of it. And in it, there was basically record labels, promoters, venues, agents all over Europe. I was like, I was like in, a kid in a sweet shop. <laughs> so I started ringing people up and, and sending off who moved the ground stuff to people. And on the back of the two week tour we had with the other band, I managed to get us another two weeks of gigs in various different other places through this book your own fucking life magazine which was was incredible um and once we'd once we'd done this um the promoters the agents and stuff they were like come back next year you must come back next year huh. and we did we did it three years on the on the trot so the first tour you went out on the road for for a whole month yes wow amazing Tell yes. us about some of the, the kind of highlights of the experiences from that first tour. Well, from the first tour, um, well, there was there, there was many, many highlights. Um, the very last gig we did in Germany, um, a place called Constance, right on the southern border of Germany near Switzerland. And it was the last night of the tour. And um, we were playing this packed venue, absolutely ram packed. We were having a great time, you know, we're all playing away. And then I looked round on stage and um, our bass player on, on the other side of the stage had been picked up by the audience and they were passing <laughs> over, over their heads while he was still playing. Still plugged in. This was, this was in the days before um, wireless things, you know, he was still plugged in. So they did it and they passed him all the way to the back of the venue <laughs> over their heads and then passed him all the way back and put him on the put him on the stage. This is why all the while he was playing the song. And I was just <laughs> beaming <laughs> while this was happened. Of course, then the next thing that happened is they did it to me. <laughs> they, couldn't, they couldn't do it to Richard, our singer, because he was stuck to the microphone. He was singing. Because I was playing, they did it to me. They picked me up, they passed me all over the head to the back, and then passed me back again and dumped me on the stage. <laughs> oh, incredible yeah you know we had um some great reactions in this country but never anything like that yes i've not heard of that before that's fantastic what a great thing it, it, it wasn't it wasn't all um sweetness and light though um the second time 
we were in Europe, um, we got chased by a load of Nazis with baseball bats. We were playing in Warsaw in Poland. And one of the bands that play, was playing with us was a, a staunchly anti-fascist band, mm. um, a punk band. A local band or? Yeah, they were a local band too, to Warsaw, I think, yeah. And um, they played and they sort of, um, they were going down really well. But all of a sudden, from nowhere, a load of skinheads entered this venue. Now, this venue was like a, a big, a big theatre. It was you know, like a thousand, fifteen hundred capacity theatre. And there was probably about, I don't know, 30 or 40 of these idiots, these skinheads, trying to disrupt the gig. Um, now, this Polish band did their stuff. Then there was another band. And then we went on. And these idiots were still um, hanging around. But when we played, everyone else kind of went crazy. And these sort of 30 or 40 idiots, you know, they were outnumbered. So they left, basically. And the rest of the gig was, it was fine. There was no dramas. They weren't trying to interrupt anything. But then at the end of the night, we were packing up, loading all our stuff into the van. And um, our tour organiser, um, Polish guy, turns around to me. I was I was the guy loading the van. And he turns around to me and he says, load the van very quickly. The Nazis are coming with the baseball bats. <laughs> and we we turned round and it was like a it was like a episode of I don't know, Keystone Cops or something. We turned round and there was literally a load of these guys coming running down the road with baseball bats. We were all shoving everything into the back of the van <laughs> as quickly as possible. Um we managed to get in, shut the door as they were all running up the side, smack trying to smash the side of the van. Fuck. That sounds terrifying. It was. Yeah. It was. But we, we sort of managed to drive off and, you know, sweat pouring down people's faces and things. It was, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. So in, in Europe, there there was the, the, the great side of, you know, the audience reactions. But there was also a little bit of an undercurrent of, of that um, dreadful... Um, neo-nazism mm. yeah awful the um but being on being on the road for a month um in europe uh, as kind of young young men we was it much of a uh a, 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 we we were a, a, a party band as much as you were a hard-working gigging band absolutely absolutely <laughs> yeah i mean i've got some some photos of some of the guys um you know like just crashed out <laughs> you know drunk um didn't do anything anything more than drink though we, we liked our drink <laughs> but yeah we liked we liked partying absolutely you have to in those kind of situations you have to be able to let your hair down mm. a month a month of that though takes its toll doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> it does yes now the the very last time we went out to europe 95 um i had one of my worst experiences of touring out there we just played um, again it was the last night of the tour we played um in poland and it was a venue that was um like um part of a, an old castle and um we'd finished we'd had a fantastic gig brilliant we're just chilling out now because we were staying at the venue we were sleeping there 
so it was it was party time it was the end of the tour um, the end of the gig right let's all have a few drinks and have a good laugh and this guy taps me on the shoulder and he said to me hey you come see and i'm like what now he could hardly speak english and i didn't really know much polish but he showed me round the middle of this um castle like around a moat and he kept he kept stopping and he kept writing in the um in the dirt on the ground with a stick 1945 and he was spitting on it and he was going nazis scum and i was thinking well i i, I couldn't work out whether he was for or against it you know and it was really weird he showed me all the way around this this castle all around this moat eventually we got back to the 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 venue where the gig had been and the rest of the band were like where the fucking hell have you been you've been worried sick and apparently i was as white as a she i was like uh well i've just been having a look around with this guy here turned around and he'd gone i was like oh, this is just really weird this is just really weird now what gets weirder about that is that the following year 96 we wanted to do it again we wanted to go out to Europe and do our monthly thing of, of having a tour out there. And I phoned up the tour promoter in Poland and I said, um, yeah, you know, great. Can we come over and do another tour of gigs? And he was like, no, I'm not doing gigs anymore. I was like, right. He's like, no, I've stopped it. It's like, OK, why was that then? And he, he said what had happened is at that venue with the castle, um, probably two or three months after we'd been there uh, another band from Leeds had been over there playing they had played at this castle venue and in the morning after their gig their bass player had been found at the bottom of the moat with his throat cut and I was like fuck that could have been me yeah do you know what I mean? I had massive visions of like some poor guy being shown round and I don't know, saying something in the wrong place and that happened to him. So so yeah, we never went back. No. What an awful story. What a horrible thing yeah. to have happened to him, yeah. Terrifying. Mm. I'm interested, Sid, how how the um the tours um in europe how they changed you when you came back and were, were, were gigging in the uk how did that change the band it didn't really change us massively um we um were always a gigging band we always liked gigging um that was what we did um that was how we built up our fan base our friends um you know lifelong friends you know i still drink now with people um you know who started by you know promoting us at a gig or turning up so i don't think it changed us massively um because the scene in this country was so different to europe you didn't have an undercurrent of neo-nazism or whatever um and the audiences in this country were a bit more a bit more relaxed you know they didn't pass you over their heads or whatever in, in this country but so i don't think it changed us we we just wanted to to carry on gigging I suppose that moves us to, to, to asking about what brought about the end of uh, Who Moved the Ground. Uh, I think, you know, I, I still play in bands now and I still think a band always has its 
life period, you know, um, it's going to come to an end. Um, and we'd put so much effort into it. You know, we did so many gigs. Um, we did two seven inch singles and then following the releases of those, we did two CD singles um, with different small labels. Um, still never got any interest from any big labels. Um, but I think we'd just taken it as far as we could go. Um, and it just, we'd, we'd had the discussion, oh, you know, you know, do we want to do this um, part-time? Do we want to sort of, you know, do some other stuff or whatever? And the, the general consensus was, no, if we can't give it 100%, we'll just we'll just move on so we did and we did um our very last gig 90 end of 96 was a uh, a gig at the west end center in Aldershot, which was sold out it was sell out so um we went out on high um you know some bands can just sort of peter out and just sort of hobble along but we were always so into what we were doing we didn't want to do that if we couldn't give it a hundred percent then we then we wouldn't um how did it feel for you personally then walking away from that or where did it take you next um i i i was a bit sad but to be honest to be selfish um i'd been asked to join another band anyway um so uh you know i like gigging playing gigs um, I think if I hadn't been asked to join another band, I would have probably felt a lot worse because it would have been like, I don't know, having a kidney removed or whatever, you know, it was like a, such a big part of our life. But, um, yeah, I'd been asked to join another band, which, I, which I did. So it kind of, for me, it was a natural progression once we moved the ground sort of finished i was almost straight away gigging with another band it, it didn't um didn't give me much time to sort of uh think about it or get too upset about it i was upset about it because um it had been my first band since i'd left school or whatever and and we'd done well and we'd put a lot of effort into it um but i didn't really have time to dwell on that too much if you were uh, have a look at um uh, who moved the ground on uh, youtube there is a there's an awful lot of material documented on film of your band including the first gig that you mentioned there's a the yes. fo footage of your first ever show up there but there's some really nice uh tv stuff as well is there a, a, a is it the tube that jules holland is introducing you on um yeah we did we did two things that were um that were introduced by jules holland they were um band competitions itv band competitions uh -huh. um and we entered those just because we liked gigging um we never we never won but <laughs> uh, we just liked gigging and um it was the opportunity to play um different venues bigger venues um and be on tv um and that was fabulous for us to um boosted our profile massively you know um when it was actually aired on tv it was like two o'clock in the morning yeah. um but uh, we still had people coming up to us going i saw you on telly it's like well you were watching it at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> <laughs> you 
but yeah people were people did watch it um and it boosted our profile massively um they had um like famous judges bob geldof was one of the famous judges on there um woody the drummer from madness there was various different people um and we got to we got to meet all of those people it was it was great um really yeah they were they were great things to be involved with um like i said we did two of them uh, i don't know if they're both on youtube but only one of them was ever aired on tv the other one didn't actually make it to tv it was filmed it was hosted by jules holland and um you know they did all of that but for whatever reason it didn't make the schedule so only only one of them was shown on tv it's nice footage to have isn't it oh absolutely you know to, to look back on that now is oh, it's fantastic yeah when you watch those, those those type of footage does it take you back to those moments of being on stage yes it does particularly one of those with ones we did with um jules holland because um the amplifier i had didn't work properly <laughs> <laughs> so i watched that and i'm thinking that doesn't sound that great <laughs> <laughs> you know the rest of the, the rest of the band is is sounding great and i'm, I'm you know I, I very rarely listen to my own guitar playing or whatever but you know there's there's one of them i listen to and oh, the guitar doesn't sound that great in that because um it was all uh, you were using all of the equipment that was provided by the TV company and everything. So it was just a case of plug in and go. Um, and I, yeah, I just think, oh, it doesn't sound that great. But, you know, most people would look at it and, and listen to it and go, that's really good. I mean, we we um, we put on a show, you know, we were always never kind of a band to stand still. So, you know, we would always be you know, making an effort to dance and get people involved and stuff. And uh, one of those, when Bob Geldof was the judge, a band had been on prior to us, had been, you know, all sort of staring at their shoes or whatever. They weren't very lively. Um, they had a fantastic singer, though. I think they may have been the, the band who actually won it. Um, they had a fantastic lead singer. Um, but yeah, the rest of the band didn't really do a lot. sort of stood at their places and stared at their shoes and when we came on we were like you know uncoiled springs we went <laughs> and we just really go for it and apparently um some friends of ours in the audience were watching bob geldof and during the previous band he'd looked really disinterested and then when we came on like uncoiled springs he suddenly went oh looked up and looked really interested in what we would do and what are the connections like between you and the other members of who moved the ground are you still friends with each other still in contact with each other absolutely yeah because we'd um we spent a lot of time together and um because we were friends still in contact now i um actually do a bit of dj and do um like a couple of slots on local radio um and uh, richard our singer the singer in who moves the ground he lives in the czech republic now um but he does uh voiceovers and he does um you know voice commercials and all of that um so i i get him to do all mine so <laughs> you know he sends them to me you're listening to you know, <laughs> he, he's got a he's got a nicer a nicer voice for that um so yeah he does all that so yeah we're still we're still good friends now you know um i think it's it's the best way to be in bands, isn't it? 
particularly when you're spending so much time together like we did gigging and um, releasing stuff and and that you have to be friends yeah if you can pull that off that's that's you know it's good if you can pull that off isn't it yes oh, oh yeah don't get me wrong i've played in bands where people have fallen out and you know just, there's just sometimes when relationships don't work and you don't get on but who moved the ground was one of those where we were lucky we all get on um you know like i say i still play in bands now and uh les our bass player the who moves the ground bass player he'll very often even now show up at one of our gigs somewhere um you know, never tells me he's coming. He just <laughs> surprises me and turns up. But that's that. That's great. You know, it's, it's how we are. You know, we're still friends. We're still supportive of each other. Is there ever a temptation to get the band back in a room together, playing all together? Uh, well, funny enough, with um, with Richard living in the Czech Republic, it's it's hard. Um, but uh, we split in '96. But in 2000, like only four years later, we did a, a one-off reformed gig, again at the West End Centre in Aldershot, and again we sold it out. Uh -huh. um, and that was before Richard moved to the, the Czech Republic. Um, because, yeah, I think, you know, if, if, he, if he was here now, we would do it um, regular. When I say regular, you know, it'd be every few years, I think. Just because there's a a big call for it you know people still liked us still remembered us still want to hear our stuff um and you know everyone's older now but you know it's like almost like a friends reunited thing when we did it in 2000 which was only four years after the, the split there were still people coming up who we hadn't seen for two or three four years or whatever and yeah, it was like a friends reunited thing just as much as a gig which is exactly what it was like when you were first starting it was about yes those social connections yeah, and those friendships which is lovely that that's maintained to this mm -hmm. day that's how fantastic well look sid thanks so much for coming on to the podcast it's been really really well. lovely hearing your stories and uh uh you share sharing your memories of, of being in who moved the ground can we just finish off with you um introducing the song that people are going to hear now please yeah, so this is Who Moved the Ground and A Thousand Voices. Thanks, Sid. Yeah, thanks, Sid. No worries. Staring for your face and you see the promise inside your head. The faith and the pain you said that never heard a bit. You said the crying was for happiness. The falling was for laughing and not for anything that really it's just to get away from the room. Sorry that before it happened, in a dream before I woke, I saw you laying there beside me, never saying anything. The truth just looked at me in such a way, just to wish that I was not asleep, far away from you and never there at all.
know it's happened suddenly With you around my head and face Your eyes will do bring nothing But a million, million tears behind your hair Your face is drunk and you don't have to speak in sentences But rabbits are oblivious The bar of things around you I wish you hadn't talked to that You know I rather left it hanging there So I can stay with you Until it ended This won't be long, you can see it now Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. (laughs) 